So if you're, uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, um, or you're visiting from another church, or for whatever reason, we're glad that you're here, glad that you've joined us on this uh, Easter Sunday. Easter is the uh, most significant day of the year for Christians. It's the day that we celebrate the, the resurrection of the Son of God. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So we have a, a special sermon this morning that's just focused on the resurrection. We're taking a break from our series in the book of Ephesians, and because we have a baptism this morning, because uh, we had sunrise service this morning, I'm going to try to have a punchy message. Going for 30 minutes, okay? I think it can be done. It'll be a first for me, but I think I can do it. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 36 to 49. Luke 24, 36 to 49. I'll read it to us now. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. This ends the reading of God's word. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for this celebration Sunday. We thank you that we can celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we ask for your help this morning. We pray that your spirit would come freshly to us, that you would open the eyes of our heart, God, that we would behold your beauty and your glory, and we would see afresh at the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what it means for us. Help me, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's this, these first verses here, verses 36 down to 43, what's the point of it? As you know, there are those that think of Christianity or the Bible as as an example, that we should see Jesus as an example of how we ought live. If that's true, what example does Jesus give us in verses 36 to 43? Eat fish? Eat low cholesterol foods? The point that Luke is getting at here is that the, is that the reality of the resurrection is true. There's no other purpose for Luke writing this section here except to tell us that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. Jesus really did rise from the dead. You see, Luke here, he's a historian. He's a historian and a physician by trade. And he takes 
careful steps. He makes careful marks to be sure that the reality and the truth of the resurrection is told to us. So look again with me at verse 39. So Jesus is appearing to his disciples. He's showing himself to them. And it says this, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Look at this. And while they still disbelieved. So if the thought in your mind is, well, of course, these are just ancient people. This is 2,000 years ago. The thoughts of superstition and so on. Uh, Of course they would believe that a man rose from the dead. But no. It says, and while they still disbelieved. He's standing right in front of them. And they still disbelieve. These are his disciples. And so Jesus goes the next step. He says, do you have something to eat? And he eats something. His flesh and bones eat something. And he says, look, I'm not a spirit. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. A spirit doesn't eat. There's other places where Luke makes it very clear to us that the reality that Jesus rose from the dead is is made known to us. He says earlier in this chapter, In Luke 24, 10, he says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. He gives people, mentions them by name. He mentions people by name that saw Jesus raised from the dead. Later on, the apostle Paul, who's one of the writers of many of the letters that are in the New Testament, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, why would Paul say that to us? Paul is saying, go check it out for yourself. Go see for yourself. There are more than 500 people that Jesus walked among when he rose from the dead, and many of them are still alive, Paul was saying. Go see for yourself. You know, there was a Roman senator and historian, his name was Tacitus, and he wasn't a friend of Christianity, but he said this in writing his history. He said, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. They're called Christians. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in Rome. What does he mean there? He's telling a history of how Christianity started. And he said, there's this superstition out there that this Christus rose from the dead. And this didn't just come to us in Judea, but this superstition made it all the way to Rome. So at least it was a fact that Jesus Christ, the word that Jesus Christ had rose from the dead had been making it throughout all the Roman Empire. The point is this. The point is simply that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened. That's the first point. See, we're going to get done in 30 minutes. 
The first point is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happened. So our second point, our second point is that he opened their minds. Look at verse 45 with me. Verse 45 says, then he opened their minds. What does that mean? These are people that have been living with him for the last three years. He's been teaching them every single day. And up until this point, they don't understand. It says, and then he opened their minds. He's talking to his disciples. He's been telling them multiple times through his ministry that the son of God, the son of man would be rejected, that he'd be killed and that he would rise on the third day. Listen to Luke, 22, Luke 9, 22 says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. He says it again in Luke eighteen thirty three. He says, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He'd been telling them this the entire time. But they didn't believe it. And the truth is that we oftentimes don't believe it. We don't believe the implications of the resurrection. You know, even Joseph of Arimathea, who we sang briefly about this morning, who had a tomb for Jesus, brought 75 pounds of embalmment to the tomb. I mean, he was not ready for this guy to be dead for three days and then rise. He was, he was dead, dead, dead to Joseph of Arimathea. On the third morning, when the women went to go see Jesus, the third morning, three days later, he'll rise. They brought with them embalmment spices. Luke 24, one says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. He'd been telling them all along, the son of man will be rejected He'll be crucified and he will rise three days later. And they didn't believe it. It says then that he opened to them the scriptures and he showed them through the entire Bible that this is what was going to happen. Imagine what that must have been like for Jesus to walk through all of the scriptures to walk through all of the scriptures and show them that it is through weakness that God triumphs. It is through a weak Messiah for the weak that God will be victorious. And they didn't believe it. And so often we don't believe it in our own lives. We don't believe that it's through weakness, through tragedy, through trial, through suffering that God brings about resurrections in our life. We just don't believe it. We see As Chris said last week, we see tragedies and trials and circumstances as the end of the story. God's punishment on us. But when Jesus opens the scriptures to them and opens their minds, it says, he shows them that the way to, uh, that weakness is the way to triumph. John Calvin, in commenting on this text, which actually was a preface to a translation of the New Testament, he says this. This is what Jesus showed them. He showed them that he is Isaac. He showed them that he is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He showed them that he is the great sacrificer and Bishop Melchizedek, 
who's offered an eternal sacrifice once for all for his people. He showed them that he is the sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. He is the true and faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to lead his people into the promised land, yea, even to the new heavens and the new earth. He is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power under subjection. He is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon who governs his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson who by his death has overwhelmed all of his enemies. He opens his mind, their minds to the scriptures and shows them that the plan all along was that it's through weakness that God triumphs. But they don't understand it. They don't believe it. And my friends, that's our message this morning. That too often we don't believe that the resurrection is coming. We don't believe that winter always comes before spring. Which brings me to my third point. That's right. Third point. Luke 24, 49 says this. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The resurrection, my friends, is about the future. The resurrection shows us that it's there, that the future is certain, and the future is wonderful. And when his people, his disciples, saw and their eyes were opened and their minds were opened, they received this kind of power. And this kind of power that they were clothed with is available to us this morning. You know, the deepest desire of the human heart is to love and be loved. The deepest desire of the heart is to love and to be loved. And you know, no other religion in the world gives us the future hope that the resurrection does. You know, scientific materialism doesn't give you this kind of hope because scientific materialism says that when you die, it's just darkness. It's, it just ends. There's nothing out there. We just, it's just over. So the greatest thing that we get to experience is to be loved and to love other people. And at the end of our life, in scientific materialism, it's just over. It's done. Even some of the Eastern reincarnation religions don't give us this. Because even if we are reincarnated in, into you know, a gnat or something, we don't love and offer love. Or even if, you know, even if Mufasa was right and we're all just part of the circle of life, the antelope eat the grass. <laughs> there's, still no, there's still no hope in that. But only in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is there hope of the future that all of our worst things will turn into our good and for our joy. That the best things that we have in life will never be taken from us. That at the end of history, when all's said and done, and we enter into the other side of the veil, and we see Jesus face to face, we will love and we will be loved. The greatest joy that we experience in this life This means, my friends, a resurrection means that whatever was once dead in our lives can receive new life. Whatever was decaying can be made new. 
There is life now where there once was death. There is healing and power where there once was brokenness. Relationships that were broken and seemed beyond repair can be restored. Marriages that seem gone without hope can have new life and love. Those in poverty and destitution can be healed. The reality of resurrection brings great power to our lives. The best place that this is probably illustrated is in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, it's the story, it's a fantasy where it is always winter, but never Christmas. It's always winter, but never Christmas. But the true king of Narnia, as you know, kids and adults, is Aslan, right? And when these group of children stumble through an old wardrobe to discover this world of Narnia, it's young Edmund who betrays Aslan and his friends. Because of Edmund's betrayal, the laws of deep magic now mean that Edmund belongs to the evil white witch. She says, that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property, says the witch. And Aslan replies, it's very true, and I don't deny it. Oh, Aslan, whispers Susan in the lion's ear, can't we, I mean, won't you, isn't there something we can do about the deep magic? Isn't there something that you can do to work against it? The child asks the unthinkable, is there some way to deal with the deep magic? But there is. Aslan, the true king of Narnia, dies a horrific death in the place of Edmund. And Susan and Lucy had been witnessed this horrific death of Aslan, and they now were said to be walking aimlessly, unsure of how to proceed. Reminds me of those women and those disciples the morning of the resurrection, walking aimlessly, unsure of how to proceed. And it says this, at that moment they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, a deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table where Aslan had died was broken in two giant pieces and a crack ran down it from one end to the other and there was no Aslan. Who's done it, cried Lucy. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked round and there shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane stood Aslan himself. But what does it all mean, asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is still a deeper magic of which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time itself had dawned, she would have read a different kind of incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who'd committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. And the flowers start blossoming and the snow starts melting. The witch, that which was dead and that which was decaying and that which was lost was now being made new. Death itself was beginning to move and work 
backwards. Do you see, my friends, what that means for us? It means in this life, our worst things will turn out for good and our best things are yet to come. It means that all of our loss, our failure, our betrayal, our denial, and death itself is working backwards. Puritan Richard Sibbs put it like this. He said, glory follows affliction, not as the day follows the night, but as the spring follows the winter. For the winter prepares the earth for spring, so do afflictions sanctified prepare the soul for glory. Glory follows affliction like the spring follows winter. My friends, you might be in a season of winter right now. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that spring is coming. And it may not be in this life, it may be in the world to come, but it will come. Winter prepares the ground for spring. The winter makes the spring all the more lovely and glorious. We planted our garden this last week and it's, it's bare in the backyard, right? Most of our backyards are just bare and the grass is brown. The, the grass is brown. I think I said it right the first time. I was looking at a picture on my phone yesterday from June 26th and the, it, my kids in the backyard and the grass is green and the flowers are like three feet high and that's only a couple months from now. It seems so hard to believe in the moment. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the spring is coming and it'll be more lovely and glorious than we can imagine. Do you realize that at the end of history, there's gonna be a resurrection of the dead? This means that eternity will be renewal of this material world. As As Chris said last week, Jesus will always be Jesus of the scars. Jesus in heaven is a man. Jesus in heaven still has the scars on his hands, but he's all the more glorious, is he not? His disciples don't even recognize him oftentimes in the resurrection. That means though, that eternity for us will be a material uh, eternity. I almost said maternity. (laughs) Men, you will be pregnant in heaven. (laughs) It'll be an eternal material world. John Erickson Tata was reflecting on this once, and John Erickson Tata was a, a young lady who was paralyzed as a, as a teenager and spent most of her life in a wheelchair and so on. And in meditating on the resurrection, she said this, I suddenly realized for the first time that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I'll be able to do is walk on my resurrected legs and drop down before Jesus on glorified knees and kneel quietly before him. And then I'm gonna get back on my feet and I'm gonna dance. Can you imagine the hope the resurrection gives someone with a spinal cord injury like me? New bodies in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If this world is all we have, then we have darkness and emptiness in front of us. But if this world is not all that we have, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, it means that we can face anything. 
We can face a life of loss. We can face a life of disability. We can face a life of being marginalized. I'll close with this quote from N.T. Wright. He's a Christian pastor. He says, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly bodily raised from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where there is injustice, violence, and degradation, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the world. Take away Easter, and Freud was probably right to say that Christianity is wishful thinking. Take away Easter, and Nietzsche was probably right to say that it's just for wimps. But it's true, my friends. Do you see this morning the grace and the hope of the risen Christ. If you do, you can face anything. Worry, troubles, loss, death even. We're gonna sing in a moment to close the service, Christ the Lord is risen today. And the lyrics say this, ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he's now in control of all of history, even the bad things that happen to you are going to be crosses to you that are going to raise you. Come on, crosses, says a Christian. The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. Come on, crosses, says the Christian. Jesus, the risen Lord, is in charge of everything. And when we see it, and when we believe it by faith, we will be clothed with power on high, like the disciples were. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for the message and the truth of the resurrection. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. We ask God that we would have eyes of faith to see it. We would believe it and we would walk in newness of life because of it. We'd be clothed with power from on high. We thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.